All right. Um, The scripture this morning is from, it's a selection of readings from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Um, The first one is from Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14. And it says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And the second reading is Proverbs 9, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, ladies. Give it up for our discipleship team here. Ready to go, ladies. Um, do we need, we good? I just do that in the back to nothingness every week just to see if someone will answer. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Uh, hey, uh, if you're new here, welcome to Midtown 12 South. Uh, we are closing out our summer series that we've been in all summer uh, called The Way of Wisdom. Next week, we'll begin our fall series. Um, we get to decide when summer ends and when fall begins, and we've decided that it's this week and next week. And so uh, we are finishing up our wisdom series today. We've we spent the summer looking at the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and holding them up as lenses to look at different topics through the lens of biblical wisdom, these two books of Old Testament uh, Hebrew wisdom, uh, and what do they have to say to how I view my money? What do they have to say to how I view my emotions? What does wisdom have to say to my desire? What does wisdom have to say to my sex life? What does wisdom have to say to my time and how I make decisions? How can we be holistically wise people. So we spent all summer looking at these different topics, um, and, and we close today with the literal final words of wisdom in Ecclesiastes. And so the, the, the question before us today is, after all of this looking at wisdom, after all this pursuit on the way of wisdom, what is wisdom's grand conclusion? What we just heard read from Emily is Literally, the final words of the book of Ecclesiastes, literally Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, his, his final written words about wisdom. He writes this whole book on wisdom, and then this is how he wants to land the plane. These are the last recorded words of the wise king of Israel. So I had a little fun this week looking at some other wise final words. What are some other last words of famous people who would, who would leave their mark, who would, who would want to leave the listener with something to consider. And George Orwell, um, who died at the age of 46, said this as his last written words, said, at 50, everyone has the face he deserves. Not sure what that means, but we don't even get to know with him because he was only 46, so we didn't get to see his 50 face. Uh, and then Karl Marx said this, his last words, he was dying, laying on his deathbed. Uh, he said with the group and the team and the nurses and the care that were with him as he lay dying, he said, get out. Last words are for fools who haven't said enough. 
which jokes on you, Carl, because those are last words. So maybe he wanted us to think about that for a little bit. But I was looking at all these wise last words, and they're, they're sometimes cryptic and sometimes meaningful, and you kind of have to sit with them and, and let them marinate a little bit and go, oh, someone's parting words. They, they really wanted someone to think and really wanted someone to, to ponder and consider this even maybe mystical statement that they would make. And so I'm sitting here thinking about, man, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, He's, he's written a lot about wisdom. He gets a lot of airtime in Scripture. He finally has his, his chance, last written words of the wisest man that ever lived. And I'm looking at it through the lens of all these other Google entries, which who even knows if they're true or not. But what, whatever the Internet said, these people's final words were. And I'm going, these famous people who had final words recorded seem to be a lot more interesting than this. Like Solomon closes his final words. This is the end of all things, he said. Everything's been read. Everything's been considered. And it all boils down to this. This is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And I read that, and and if I'm honest, I kind of go... It's a little uninteresting, Solomon. It sounds a little Bible-y. It sounds a little kind of boring. Like, you are the wisest man that ever lived, and this is what you leave us with? Fear God and keep his commands? It sounds wildly unoriginal. It sounds pretty religious. I'm not sure that... I I want your final words, Solomon, to kind of inspire me. Like, send me on a journey. You know, rile me up a little bit. Put a little wind in my sails. And wisdom's going to close with fear God and keep his commands. It sounds a little bit more like an angry deity than it does like this beautiful invitation to the way of wisdom. So why does this, why does this closing, why does this, this final immovable pillar of wisdom from the wisest man who ever lived, why does, it, why does it sound so uninteresting and boring to us? Why do, why do we want wisdom's conclusion to be more than that? Well, what if... Just hypothetically, what if what needed a different perspective, what, what if what needed altering was not wisdom's conclusion, but us? What if uh, what wasn't shallow and boring was wisdom Solomon's final conclusion to fear God and keep his commands? What if what was shallow and boring was us? What if this is deep and profound and we're the ones that have the learning to do? What if Solomon actually is giving us everything we need to know about wisdom, and because of our um, demand for more, we're missing the depth here? So I'm studying this passage this week and studying some of the original language in, in Hebrew, ancient, ancient Hebrew, and, and the Hebrew language here is quite interesting. It's quite revealing about the true depth that is in Solomon's final words See, in our English translations, we translate it, or we don't, I didn't have anything to do with the translations, but scholars have translated this for centuries, and they've kind of inserted this word that is implied by the original Hebrew language, but it's not necessarily in there, and, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. They're, they're trying to get at the, the heart of the meaning, the heart of the words that are there, but they've inserted this implied noun in there. They say this, fear God and keep his commands, for that is the, or this is the whole duty of mankind. But the Hebrew doesn't actually say that. The Hebrew leaves some of that undefined. The literal translation is this, fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole of mankind. Or another way to say it is this, fear God and keep his commands, there is all there, this is all there is to being human. 
that when it says this is the whole duty of man, that word duty has been inserted in there. Now, the wholeness of mankind certainly includes his duty, but what the Hebrew author, what Solomon is saying is, fear God and keep his commands. There's nothing else that it means to be a human being. This is the whole of mankind. This is true humanity. This is actually the path, Solomon say, to being a real, fully alive, whole, and healed human being. Because when Solomon says, fear God and keep his commands, this is a call that puts us in our right place. This is a call that puts us in our right size. This is a call that brings us very low and it teaches us how to be truly human. Fear God and keep his commands for this is what it means to be a human being. Do you want to be whole? Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be healed? Solomon would look at us and say, there is nothing else to being human than to fear God and keep his commands. And here's what Solomon's trying to say. When you fear God and keep his commands, that will actually put you in a place that will cut with the grain. It, it will be putting you in your right place, the place you were designed for. You will be cutting with the grain of your original design, of the way you were made as a human being. Do you want to be a fully alive human? Do you want to be truly human? Do you want to have a wise, rich, vibrant life as a human? What it means to be a whole human is to act in accordance with the way that you were designed as a human. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole of man. This is all there is to man. Do you know that being a human being, one of the things that it means to be a human being is that the only thing, the only space-time moment that you and I have any effect over is the present finite moment, like right now. And right now, and right now, like we cannot actually affect, we can't control the future. We can't change the future. What it means to be human is to understand your finitude, your limitedness. You can't alter your regrets of the past. You can't con change or manipulate what's coming down the road. And so to be human means to be finite. You and I are limited to this time and space to actually do something with is the present moment. And so to fear God and keep his commands brings us into this limitedness and keeps us human. It means to be fully here. Like right now, it means to be present with the person you're with. To be fully present is what it means to be fully human because humans are limited to the present. It is the most human thing you can do is to be right-sized, to be brought into your finite, limited naturedness is to be human. And so wisdom's call is to be a faithful, humble human in the present. Fear God and keep his commands. Be a faithful, humble human in the present because that's what you are. That's what you were designed to be was a finite, not infinite creature. Fear God and keep his commands is an urging, is, is a leading that, get this, has nothing to do with controlling or manipulating a future. It has nothing to do with altering the past that you regret, that you're ashamed of. Fear God and keep his commands keeps us in humble reliance and humble obedience in the present. And wisdom is always calling us to be faithful and humble in the present. This is all there is to being human. 
You want to be a wise human? Do you, want to be a, do you want to be a fully alive human? You've got to learn what it means to be a human. And to be a human means you have limits. To be a human means you have finite things that are outside of your control. And in order to do that, to be fully alive in the present, wisdom would say to us, fear God and keep his commands. This is all there is to being human right now. It also allows me in the present, if I'm fearing God and keeping his commands and I'm being fully human with you, here's what it allows me to do. It actually allows me to love you. Because how many times are you having an, in, inter, an interaction with somebody and you're thinking about what you're going to be doing next, you're thinking about what they're thinking about you, you're thinking about how you want them to think when they leave you, you're thinking about the things that you're worried about that are more interesting than what they're talking about, you're thinking about past shame and how that's altering, how you can't really have this interaction with them right now, and everything about that moment is pulling you out of that moment. And so to be a fully alive human means to be present, like right now, right now, and that actually allows me to love you, and it allows me to be loved by you. Because if I'm fully here and you're fully here, guess what we get to experience? Intimacy between other human beings. I'm here with you, and you're here with me. This call to be human that Solomon is saying in all of those aspects, to be finite, to be limited, to embrace that, to be present in the present because you can't be anywhere else, is Solomon's ultimate call to wisdom because you're actually stepping into the way you were made, which is to be a finite human who can't know everything, who can't be everything, and who can't do everything. Just be present. That's what Solomon's calling us to. But man, this is so difficult. It's so hard to be present with people. And a lot of times what, what creates a difficulty in being present is, is either past shame or future fear. And that seems to drive a wedge into my ability to just be with you, to sit with you, to listen to you, to love you, to respond to you, to, listen, to be there with you. And so you may be looking at me and you may be going, fear God and keep his commands. Elliot, you don't know how my marriage is about to come off the rails. And I don't even know if we're going to make it. And I can't see a way that this, that this path goes to healing. I have no idea this is going to be okay. Wisdom would say, fear God and keep his commands. Be present in this moment. That's all you can do. You cannot affect how that's going to go. You cannot control how that's going to go. You cannot manipulate how that's going to go. All you can do is be faithful and humble in the present. Or you say to me, you go, yeah, but Elliot, you don't understand. Like, I've got this addiction, and I keep staring down the barrel of this addiction, and I don't know how I'm ever going to kick this habit, and I can't imagine you want me to be sober forever, and I can't, I can't even imagine being sober through next week. What are you going to say to someone who's got this addiction? And I would go, be faithful and humble in the present. Fear God and keep his commands right now. That's the only thing you can do. And I know some of you are saying, I don't know how I'm going to pay rent next month, and I just lost my job, or I've got this thing going on in my life that is totally altered where I thought I would be right now, and I thought I would be more content right now, or I thought I'd be married by now, or I thought I'd be a better father, or a better husband, or a better wife, or a better mom right now. I thought my reality of today would look very different, and so I have all this regret in the past and all this fear in the future. What would you say to someone whose life doesn't look the way they want it to look today? Fear God and keep his commands. Because what will that do for you? It will keep you in the present, which is the only place that real humans can be. Culturally speaking, experientially, we resist this call to stay in the present, to stay in our right size, because we want the freedom and the autonomy of always being able to, to challenge, always being able to know more, always being able to control more, always being able to understand more than what's right in front of us. 
We want the right to always ask more questions. We always want the right to discover more of the unknown. We want to be everything, know everything, understand everything, change everything, and have the power to do so. And so this simple statement of fear God and keep his commands for this is the whole of man, you know what it does? It challenges my identity that I love having about myself, that I'm someone who's actually infinite and not finite. Don't tell me my power is limited. Don't tell me my time is limited. Don't tell me my ability to affect my future is limited. I want to believe that I can do more than just be here right now. Which is what he says in verse 12. Solomon literally says, he's giving this final word of wisdom, and he says, beware of anything beyond this. Beware of anything beyond this saying of wisdom. He says, for, the, for with the writing of books, of the writing of books, there is no end. Meaning like people are going to write a bunch of books and you're going to want to devour a bunch of books. And of the writing of books, there is no end. Beware of anything beyond just right here. Beware of any self-help. Beware of any worldly wisdom that would pull you out of this moment that makes you think you can control something or manipulate something or fully understand something so that you can control it. Solomon would say, beware of anything beyond something that would take you out of being present right here because that's what it means to be human. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a book called The Great Divorce and it's this kind of fantastical, imaginative uh, exploration of the meeting of, of, of heaven and hell and Without getting all into it, there's this interaction between kind of a, a whole, white, fully alive spirit and, and fully alive human on the other side, and then the, the, the misty, uh, vapory, falling apart spirit human. And they, they have this bus ride where they get to interact, and this bus stop where they get to interact, these people who are heading to two totally different places. And it's profound and brilliant, but there's this one moment where people from either world are, are getting to interact, and, and one of them, the whole white Spirit is, is, is pleading with someone on the other side to say, hey, come, come with me, come with me, come with me. And the other person is resistant. And he says, I know if I go with you, I'm going to get, uh, you, you're going to think I'm going to get answers over there. Answers to my questions, answers to my pain, answers to all the unknowns that I walk with you. But here's what I want. I want the right to always be able to ask a question. I want the right to always know that I could understand more. I want the autonomy of never being told you can't ask about that. And if I go with you, I'm going to get answers, and it's going to shut down my right to ask questions. And so the whole very human uh, white spirit says back to him, he says, don't you remember when you were a kid and you had all these you know, inquisitive moments of asking questions, why is the sun orange and why is the sky blue and, and why, 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 why? And, and when you would get an answer you would be satisfied with the answer knowing that you don't have to know and understand everything. You were just satisfied with the answer to your question. Here's what he says to him as, as the final statement. Become that child again, even now. Here's the invitation from Solomon from C.S. Lewis. Do you know that wisdom would say, it's okay that you don't know everything? And wisdom is saying, become that child again, even now. That's why most of the book of Proverbs is a father talking to a son. Because what it means to be wise is to remain childlike. To not have to know everything and be everything and understand every part of the future that you're not in control of. Become that child again, even now. That's what Solomon's saying. This is, this is wisdom's first conclusion. You want to be wise? Here's the first step. God is God and you are not. You are to fear him and obey him. And that is not a demand from an angry God. Get this. This is the invitation to being a whole human. 
That invitation, fear God and keep his commands, will keep you in the present. Keeping you in the present will make you eternally wise and discerning. This will make you a whole human being. There is nothing more to being a human being. Fear God and keep his commands. Be humble and faithful in the present. The wisest thing you can do is to stay present. And to fear God and keep his commands gives you the ability to stay present. So that's wisdom's first conclusion. God is God and you are not, and you are to fear him and obey him. This will keep you present. Here's wisdom's second conclusion. Solomon has more to say to us. Solomon refers to God in this passage with a title that he doesn't refer to God as in any other part of his wisdom. It's the only time in all of Solomon's wisdom writings that he refers to God with this particular title. So we should be paying attention to it. He used it intentionally to draw our attention to it. Verse 11, these words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings and they are given by one shepherd. Isn't it interesting that in the words of the wisest man who ever lived, his, his literal like closing words on the wisdom of his life, wisdom's grand conclusion, is that he wants the reader and the listener to know about their shepherd. He's essentially saying that all of this wisdom that I've garnered, all this wisdom I've gained in my life, of the writing and the reading of books, there is no end. I've read them all. I've written a lot of them too. Thousands and thousands of of proverbs and wisdom couplets that I, I know it all. And I want you to know that wisdom came to me. It was revealed to me from a divine source. And that divine source that gave me the wisdom wasn't this far-off monarch who I had no interactions with, who I had to be afraid to go be with. And it didn't come from this mystical sage who had a long beard on a tall mountain and I had to climb the mountain to get some cryptic saying from him. No, wisdom came to me, was divinely revealed to me by a shepherd. The ultimate concluding words of wisdom, Solomon wants us to know that wisdom comes from your shepherd. And the shepherd metaphor, if you can keep pulling on the string, continues in this very passage, in that very verse. He says that this one shepherd who's who's given the wisdom, who is the giver of wisdom, his wisdom, his sayings of wisdom, this shepherd's wisdom are like goads. And that's not a bad way to say goats. That's a different word. It's goads. Goad is like a shepherd's staff. It's a long rod that has a pointy tip on it and is used by shepherds to, to protect them for sure, but it's also used by shepherds with their sheep to guide their sheep into green pastures, to guide their sheep away from danger. It is a shepherd's rod or a shepherd's staff. Solomon says that the shepherd, the one true shepherd's wisdom is going to be like a goad for you, his sheep. And shepherds always use their rod and their staves, their goads, to guide the sheep. And so if you keep playing with a metaphor, think about this logically now. Your wisdom comes from a shepherd, and his guiding of you in wisdom is going to be like a goad that will protect you and guide you and lead you away and defend you and all the things that a goad does. But think about this now. A shepherd, in order to use a goad or a staff or a rod with his sheep, has to be near to the sheep. Shepherds are always with their sheep. So if wisdom's first conclusion is God is God and you are not, you are to fear him and obey him and stay in the present moment because you are a human, here's wisdom's second conclusion. That same God, your shepherd, is with you. He's close enough with you in this quest for wisdom. 
He's close enough to use his goad, his staff, to continue to guide you. He couldn't call his wisdom a goad if he wasn't close enough to use it with you. If you heard in our call to worship from Rebecca, Psalm 23, it's an infamous, the Lord is my shepherd passage that talks all about the Lord's shepherding of his sheep. Verse four of Psalm 23 is startling if you know anything about shepherding and sheeping. Verse four of Psalm 23 says, for your rod and your staff, your goad, comfort me. Have you ever seen a shepherd goad the sheep? It's got like a spearhead on it. It's got like a pointy iron tip on it that like is used to like prod and poke and keep away and defend. And David says, your rod and your staff, your goad, they comfort me. How in the world could a goad be equivalent for David, who's writing Psalm 23, to be a comfort for him? Because the goads, the, the wisdom of your good shepherd that will be used to guide and correct and steer you away from danger and keep you on a healthy path to becoming whole, they may sting a little bit. It may inflict wounds, but it's always meant to lead you to comfort and joy and peace. And the fact that the shepherd is even using the goad on you, the fact that the shepherd is even concerned or considered enough to use the goad on you to keep you in wisdom, to keep you in wholeness, to keep you away from danger, means that he cares about you. And that is a comfort. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You're only using the rod and the staff on me. You're only using the goad on me because you care about me. And that's a comfort for me. Like, what, what if the goads of the shepherd's wisdom, what if his correction of us in wisdom, what if this very saying, fear God and keep his commands, weren't meant to lead you to joylessness and despair and monotony? Like, we hear fear God and keep his commands, and we go, gosh, that's so boring. I don't want to experience just a boring religious life that's so, that sounds so unappealing. And I would look at you and I would go, what if the shepherd actually knows where green pastures are? What if the shepherd act- actually knows because he made you? What if he actually knows what would lead you to life and wholeness and healing, and he has to use his goad on you, his rod and his staff on you to get you there? What if they're always meant to lead you to joy? What if they're always meant to lead you to embracing your limits, to embracing your finitude, to understanding that you're not God and he is, to embracing the fact that he's infinite so you don't have to be, and that is what it means to be a human being and stay present? What if all of the goads are guiding us to be a whole, present human being because that's what's good for us? That is what will lead us to everlasting joy. That is what will lead us to healing and wholeness because that will be what it means to be a human do you know what happens to animals when they resist the shepherd's guiding, when, when they resist the prodding of the goad, when they, when they literally kick against them? That phrase, kicking against the goads, appears in the New Testament. Saul, who became Paul the Apostle, before he was Paul the Apostle and, and shared the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus all throughout the Roman Empire, before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul the persecutor. He was Pharisee of Pharisees. He was running around killing new Christians for placing faith in this Messiah, Jesus. He was murdering them and, and, and 
creating martyrs left and right, and he was proud of it. He thought he was doing God favors. And then he's on his road to Damascus to, to kill more Christians. And Jesus himself comes and stops him, throws him off of his horse on the road to Damascus. And at the end of the book of Acts, he's retelling that story to a group of listeners. And they say, what was that like? What did Jesus say to you? And he goes, well, he, he kicks me off the horse, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says this, it's not good for you to kick against these goads. Like, you can almost hear in Jesus is saying, like, aren't, aren't your feet sore? Like, aren't you hurting kicking against these goads? Like, I, I'm hurting for you because it's not good for you to kick against this thing to, that's leading you into death. Like, I'm trying to lead you into life, Paul. It's not good for you to kick against these goads. Do you know what happens to sheep, to livestock that kick against the goads? Their feet get bloody. They get wounded. And the goad of this good shepherd's wisdom may be painful for us. It may be having to correct us, fear God and keep his commands, stay in the present, stay human. You can't control or manipulate the future. You can't change all of your shameful past. You need to stay present right here, right now. We, we, we buck up against that. And what if the shepherd is saying, don't kick against the goad. Don't, don't resist my, my guiding of you. That's what shepherds do. Fear God and keep his commands may sting you and may be correcting you and guiding you down a path you don't like and you want to resist. But please hear, your shepherd is eternally committed to your wholeness. And he will only use his goad on you, he will only use his rod and your, his staff on you to comfort you, to lead you to joy. You bear his name, church. Do you know how committed he is to you being whole, to you being healed? He will guide you and shepherd you because he loves you. He is not trying to rob you of joy. He's trying to lead you to life. He's trying to lead you away from danger. He's trying to lead you to green pastures. He's trying to lead you to rest. It is not good for you to kick against these goads. Charles Spurgeon, who I've said many times, is one of my favorite dead people Famous English uh, preacher, prince of preachers, they called him. Uh, I went back and read a sermon of his. He preached an entire sermon on half of Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. That was his only text. You're welcome for moving quicker through passages than him. Uh, but I went back and read uh, this sermon. It's profound. It's called The Lord is my shepherd. Listen to what he says about um, shepherds and their sheep. And speaking about this idea that the rod and the staff are meant, sometimes they have to be used with force. Sometimes they inflict wounds on the sheep. Sometimes it brings pain. But listen to what he says about it. Sometimes when the sheep have been wandering, they get such a stroke from the shepherd's crook that you would think it would break their backs. But he will only lame us because he will not lose us. He will only lame us because he will not lose us. Wisdom's call is to stay near, to stay with, to stay present with the shepherd who will not lose you. Do you know in actual real life shepherding, 
Sheep um, are never um, wondering where their next meal is going to come from. They're not eating lunch and going, man, this is great. I'm really worried. We're not going to have anything for dinner. Could you go ahead and tell me, shepherd, exactly where dinner is going to be and how you're going to cook the meat? Because I'm really worried about me getting my next meal. Do you know shepherds and, or sheep with their shepherds, they are never afraid of a possible danger that's not there. Like, they're not saying to their shepherd, like, hey, I know last night you defended us from those wolves, but I'm kind of scared of the wolves that might come tomorrow, so I'm going to need you to tell me that everything's going to be okay, I need you to give me your plan of defense so that I know that when the next wolf comes, how you're going to defend us. That will put me at ease. Sheep don't do that. It's sufficient for sheep that the shepherd knows where their next meal is. It's sufficient for the sheep that the shepherd knows where danger is. It's sufficient for the sheep that the shepherd understands how to take care of them. And this is how wisdom's first conclusion, fear God and keep his commands, stay present, that's all you can do. Stay present, be human. That's how the first conclusion relates to the second conclusion of the, the fact that the Lord your shepherd is with you. Fear God and keep his commands is the same call to trust the shepherd. The battle for wisdom is in staying present with your shepherd. And as sheep, we imagine, we imagine future troubles, we imagine future pains, we imagine future loneliness, and what that does, all of that is trying to wedge into our experience of the present. We have shame from our past, and all of it is pulling us out of this moment, and at each step, it's robbing us of peace and comfort, you know why? It's impossible to get peace in a fantasy world. You can't get peace anywhere but the present. It's impossible to get peace about a future that hasn't happened yet. Can't get it. Doesn't exist. It's not a real thing because the future isn't real yet. The present is, you want peace? You can only have peace in the present. We spend so much, we spend an inordinate amount of time subconsciously and consciously leaving this moment leaving the present moment. And wisdom is right-sizing us with our shepherd and saying, stay with your shepherd. You are trying to imagine how all of this is going to work out and how when your past might catch up to you or what your past is going to say about you and how it's forever altered you. And now you're wondering how my kids are going to turn out. How am I, how am I going to pay bills? Am I ever going to get married? How am I going to, how's, and we're trying to find all this peace in a world that literally is a fantasy. It's not real. And wisdom is always calling us to reality. And the first step in wisdom is be a human being. And that means you can, you can only stay here. You have to be right here. And when you're staying here, stay with the shepherd who will not lose you. Spurgeon goes on to say this, Beloved, you are at the narrow pass of today. Therefore, meet your troubles one by one as they come, and God's grace will make you more than equal to them to enable you to overcome them. But when you get into the broad fields of months and years ahead and begin to think of a month's troubles or a year's trials, you will begin to fear that you will never conquer them. Get and stay in your proper place and be there with your shepherd. Beloved, you are at the narrow pass of today. And when you and I leave today and we start imagining how that's going to go or how am I going to figure that out or what happens if this happens and what will I do when they make this choice and all, all the things that wage war with us staying right here, peace is impossible. Get in your proper place and stay there with your shepherd. So 
What is wisdom's grand conclusion? Two parts. God is a God and you are God is God and you are not. You are to fear and obey him and this will make you eternally wise in discerning because it will make you a whole human. It will bring healing to all of your attempts to be infinite. It will make you wise because it will keep you present. And then the second is like it. The Lord, your shepherd, is with you. You want to be wise? Stay present with your shepherd. Do you want to know how to handle all the troubles that you don't even know are coming to you when you leave here? Stay present with your shepherd. Do you want to know what that relationship that's falling apart needs? You'll know when you get there. Stay present with your shepherd. Do you want to know how to heal this wound? Stay present with your shepherd. Wisdom, this one line, fear God and keep his commands, and that comes from your good shepherd. That one conclusion encompasses what every storyline in this room might need wisdom for. And do you know that in the person of Jesus, God has become your very good shepherd? That the same God who is to be feared and obeyed is the same God who is as close to you as a shepherd is the same Jesus who didn't see, who would not have it any other way than him to become your good shepherd. And listen in John chapter 10, what we find out about Jesus. Essentially, this is where Jesus calls himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. This is one of the infamous seven I am statements of the book of John. He says, I am the good shepherd. Self-title of Jesus And he's so good. He's essentially saying in this passage, he's so good. You know what he didn't need? He didn't need goads. He didn't need a rod or a staff to guide him for what he set set his heart to do. He never veered off course in his goal. He He never had a straying off of the path where he had to be convinced or talked into doing the thing that was set before him. What he had his heart set on, the object that he never departed from, was to lay his life down for his sheep. In John chapter 10, when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, anytime Jesus is using um, an analogy or an image or a parable, there's usually a couple different levels of Jesus' allegory or Jesus' parabolic teaching. Normally, like the first level, the listener in the original audience is kind of nodding, I fully understand you, infinite, wise, eternal God, I fully am following of you. And then then he kind of drops the hammer. Then he kind of brings it to another level where the listener has to, kind of like the record scratch moment, like, what did did he say? And the first level of the good shepherd allegory, the first level of the good shepherd title that Jesus gives himself is everyone be nodding, going, oh, yes, you lead to green pastures. Ah, yes, Psalm 23, you are our protector. Yes, 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 yes. And then Jesus drops the hammer. He makes a gut punch that kind of takes his title of the good shepherd. You have to deal with this. He says at the end of the John 10 passage about him being the good shepherd that for a bunch of sheep who continually need prodding, that for a bunch of sheep that many times don't fear him and don't keep his commandments, that for a bunch of sheep who are continually wandering away from him out of the present into a future that is not theirs to handle, for a bunch of sheep, he not only says that he lays his life down for them, but that he chooses to do so. It's not out of obligation. No one is forcing him, tying his right hand behind his back and leading him. Our good shepherd says, no one takes my life from me. No one has the authority to do that. I have all authority. And guess what I'm choosing to do with all of my authority? Lay my life down for a bunch of wayward, wandering sheep. 
So why in the world would Jesus, out of all the authority and all of his volition that he had, why would he choose to lay his life down for wandering sheep? Why would he choose that instead of showing wrath, he decided to show mercy to his sheep? Why would a bunch of sheep who have the ability to leave the present from their shepherd, a bunch of sheep who hate being finite and want to be infinite, why would this shepherd say, I'm going to choose to move towards them in mercy? Well, over and over again in the gospel accounts, Matthew chapter 9 is one of them. It says it all across the gospels. Jesus will come up on this crowd. Sometimes he comes up on an entire city, up on the hill, and he's looking over at the city. And the, and the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will say, and then we saw Jesus, and he was moved with compassion because he saw the crowds, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. That little Greek word, compassion, it's a very powerful expression of compassion. In fact, biblically speaking, it's only attributed to God or Jesus. It's like an eternal level of compassion. And it's, it shares the same root word with like the bowel movement, the intestinal area. Like Jesus was literally eternally sick to his stomach, like bent over and I don't feel well because of how much compassion I'm feeling in my gut for sheep without a shepherd. He's so deeply moved, he's heart sick, he's gut sick, he's ill of how deeply he cares for and has compassion for wayward sheep. Do you know that your God, your Jesus, when he looks at the, at the lineage of your life, when he looks at you and all that you've done and all that you that have done to you and all the failed attempts to love people in the present and all the vows and promises you've broken and all the, all the wounding that has happened because you've left the present, all of it, when he looks at your life, do you know he feels something towards you? Do you, know, do you know he has like an emotional response? He's not stoic. Do you know that he's experiencing something when he looks at how your life has gone and how your life is going? And here's what the Bible is, is undeniably screaming at us. He feels compassionate towards you. Look, I don't know about you, but when I look at my life and the storyline that's led up to, to this moment, Almost never do I look at those things and go, I have compassion on myself for that. It's usually shame and regret. It's usually fear. It's usually wish it would have gone a different way. And then that tends to bleed into how I look going forward. Almost never am I looking at my storyline and feeling like compassion is allowed to be had. But Jesus says when he looks at sheep without a shepherd, he feels ill with the amount of compassion he has. That his deep care for his sheep drove him, Jesus says, to lay down his life for them. No one took it from him. His compassion always drives his mercy. And his mercy may be severe. It may hurt at times. He may have to inflict wounds. But his staff is always used in mercy to guide, correct, feed, nourish, and protect his sheep. So here again, wisdom's conclusion. The same God who is to be feared and obeyed in the present is the same God who is as close as a, as a shepherd is to his sheep. And your shepherd, your merciful, good shepherd, 
has laid down his life for you. Here is wisdom's grand conclusion. Stay near to the shepherd who will not lose you. Let's pray. Jesus, we are silly sheep who um, over and over and over again leave our shepherd's side. And wisdom is calling us to your side. Wisdom is calling us into the present to be with you. That in the present is where we get loved. In the present is where we get hugged. In the present is where we can experience your compassion. And so as we enter a time of worship to close, keep us present, we pray. Get us out of our heads and into our hearts as we, in, in wisdom's call, try to stay present with our shepherd. Lead us in that now. Speak to us, guide us, comfort us with your rod and your staff, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.